Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where AA members share their stories of experience, strength, and hope. This podcast is my gift of service to Alcoholics Anonymous and strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, no advertising is allowed, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. This is the 35th interview in my podcast series and features my longtime friend, Ernie G. His story is a fascinating excursion into a high-class lifestyle of fast cars, flashy clothes, and glittery nightclubs, all underwritten by a high-paying day job and cocaine dealing on the side. As his alcohol and cocaine use turned into alcoholism and drug addiction, all accountability to career, family, and friends evaporated. His risky behavior escalated until he was arrested in a DEA sting and jailed in federal prison. When he got out, he managed to avoid cocaine, aided by increasing use of alcohol. Meanwhile, his marriage and parenthood suffered irreparably. Separation from his wife and daughter soon occurred and culminated in divorce. Left alone and still addicted, Ernie returned to his nightclubs every night of the week to find relief, but those days were gone. Incomprehensible demoralization was hastening his demise until his moment of clarity during a visit to his largest business client, who also paid for Ernie's inpatient treatment. From there, three AA members, including his present-day sponsor, pulled Ernie into a program of hard work, prayer, and service. His relationships with his daughter and ex-wife finally began to heal. Today, nearly 16 years later, he is still sober, and his life reflects the willingness of a man who unconditionally allowed the grace of God and the program of AA to change his life. There's a lot more of Ernie's story that you're going to enjoy, some with which you may identify. Like all my other interviews, it's both unique and entertaining, while conveying the serious message of possibilities and hope available in Alcoholics Anonymous. So, Enjoy listening to this episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA brother, Ernie G. I'm Ernie. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Ernie. Hi, Howard. I'm so glad you could do this this morning, and I'm so happy that we were able to arrange this. I know we've been looking at our schedules and trying to match things up, so this is really special. You know, I first met you, Ernie, I guess it was when you had been sober maybe, what, six months maybe, or... Does that sound about right? Randy's my sponsor, and mm-hmm. Randy's been taking me to the Saints meeting right. and the Sunday night meeting since I got sober almost week one, week two. I remember those first few weeks and months of your sobriety. One of the things that really impressed me about you at that time was that you were in the process, I believe, of raising a daughter, or you had a a daughter at that point that you were essentially raising, and 
That's pretty extraordinary for a man to be raising a child in the early days of sobriety, and it really impressed me. Can you tell me how that worked at that time? Yes. So I was released from my inpatient treatment center, Uh and George had requested that both my sponsor, Randy, and and my great-grand sponsor, Stephen M., come to my house and do an inspection for drugs and alcohol and do an inspection for contraband (laughs) to make sure the house was clean. And and so... uh, Did they have an AA search warrant? (laughs) That's what I want to know. (laughs) Well, uh, uh, I'll tell you what, they they missed something pretty important. They did come and spent uh, a whole Saturday morning going through my house and clearing out the debris... God gave me two serious tests um, during my sobriety. I think there's a, there's a second test I'll mention later. I will tell you this, that the guys came in and did an inspection for contraband. And several months later, a, a little bindle of cocaine fell out of a book or something at some point. Uh, sure. Uh, which was a, an early test. But the reason I bring any of this up was you asked me about my being a father in early sobriety and what that was about. And it uh-huh. all stems from Stephen M., who was a father and, as luck would have it, had a daughter the same age as my daughter. Oh, wow. And when he came to my house and he saw how I was living, he was really disgusted and very unhappy. Uh-huh. And what he said to me on that Saturday morning is, it's time to be a man, Ernie, and I, I need you to get a maid over here first thing Monday morning to clean up this house because you are a father of a young lady and this house needs to be in impeccable order and it needs to be a clean house for your daughter, number one. Huh. Number number two, you're a married man. I need you to cause no further damage with your wife. I said, how do I do that? He says, mostly just keep your mouth shut and, and, mm. and make sure your wife and your daughter have the money they need to uh, survive and live off of. And number three... And this is most important. You will always do what's in the best interest of your daughter. Mm. And he was pointing his finger in my face. He was pissed mm. off. I'll bet. I was really fortunate. I had Stephen and Bobby J at yeah. a weekday men's meeting at 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. that I went to. And Stephen repeated that mantra to me umpteen times. You will cause mm. no further damage with your wife. And you Mm -hmm. do what's in the best interest of your daughter. Hmm. And so that probably had a lot to do with me bringing up the fact that I was a father, you know, in early sobriety. Yeah. Now, so when we're talking about early sobriety, how long have you been sober? What's your sobriety date? My sobriety date is August 2nd, 2005. Okay. So you've got, you're coming up on 16 years? 16 years on the 2nd. Very, very cool. Well, I know Bobby J, and I've gone to meetings with him for years. I have not recently so much, but in the early days, certainly, and Stephen M as well, and uh, and also Randy M, and and those three fellows, just between the three of them, are like uh, they're amazing with the way they work their program and the no nonsense approach. Now, you mentioned your wife. Were you guys still married uh, at that point? Yes, we were still married. My my wife having grown tired of my act, uh, had moved out with my daughter. So you were separated? We were separated. That's correct. So you were separated when Randy took you to your first meetings of AA? 
Correct. I was separated when I went into the rehab facility. How long were you in rehab for? I was inpatient for a couple of weeks mm-hmm. and then, you know, did the outpatient thing for the prescribed period, whatever that was, four weeks or like. Your exposure to AA, was that prior to or during or after your inpatient experience? After my inpatient experience, I... I had heard of AA a few times prior to going to rehab, but I don't know. I had no idea there was any solution to my problem. I, I really didn't know. I'm familiar with the treatment center that you went to, and I know that they have inside meetings. They've got an alumni group that does AA in in that particular facility. So you were exposed to AA to some extent before you even got out, and then you did your IOP once you were out in conjunction with AA? Yes. So once I was in my IOP, the, I was released on a Monday. Uh-huh. Two days later on that Wednesday, which was supposed to be my first day with my daughter. Yeah. I was supposed to have my daughter that night. Yeah. And Randy called me on Wednesday and said, Ernie, there's, uh, there's an incredible men's meeting tonight that yeah. I really strongly urge you to attend. I, I'm, in fact, I need you to, to be at this meeting. Huh. And I thanked Randy for the suggestion and told him, yes, uh, I really like to go, but tonight's my night, you know, with my daughter and I, and she needs me and I, I, I need to be there for her. Mm. And Randy said, but your daughter needs is a sober man. Mm-hmm. I really, really think you should come to this meeting and make arrangements to see her on another night. Wow. Yeah. I can see that that still kind of chokes you up to think back to that, huh? It does. And, and at the time, it angered me that he, he was telling me that the meeting, you know, trumped. Huh. And, and I, re- I, wanted to, I wanted to curse him. I, I may have. I don't know. But, um, but I, I went to the meeting. Huh. So by that point, you and your wife were separated, but you had you had it worked out when you would get to see your daughter. Yes, I, w- I had it worked out, and I don't I don't think it was I don't know if it was a legal separation or not. I don't recall. I don't think so. We were just kind of working it mm-hmm. out. I see. She was mad as a hornet, of course, and wasn't too sympathetic. And I missed my daughter's first day of school because I was in rehab. Oh, how old was she? She was in kindergarten, so five or six. So what had things gotten like in your behavior that led up to the the separation? What, what kind of things were you doing and when did the bottom start to fall out? Basically, it was my, my, my comings and goings. Uh, coming home super late, not at all, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, not being where I'm supposed to be, those sorts of things. And it was one of those weekends where I was um, supposed to go on a trip that I never took. I just hung around so I could, you know, party, you know, mm-hmm. without any accountability. And uh, one of my wife's friends spotted me about town and let her know that I was in town. I was, I was supposed to be in Vegas playing a, a poker tournament. Hmm. That was the, the catalyst for uh, her moving out. That was the final straw. Had she suspected anything or, or called you on the carpet on any, any of your behavior prior to that? Sure, she did. Uh, you know, we 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 partied together. We were you know we were a pretty good team. The the difference sure. being, if you could go out and have a good time with friends, um, for the most part, and, and and not have to continue on 
She's mm. not an addict uh, of my variety, uh, you know, that sort of thing. I get it. So you, you mentioned the word addict. Which substance was the prevailing for you? Oh, cocaine. Yeah, cocaine. Cocaine yeah. brought me lots of trouble. It, it culminated in a rehab, but that wasn't my first. Uh, there were problems before that. Were there? Yeah, there were. When did the problems first start? I guess the, the problems with consequences happened um, in Dallas uh, in the mid-80s. I found I could gain uh, uh, lots of popularity by uh, peddling the substance, and um, that uh, culminated uh, with me uh, eventually getting locked up for a, a long while. So you were dealing cocaine when you were up there. Was that mostly to support your own using, or was was that how you were making your income? No, I, I had a full-time professional job that was fairly well-paying job. I was... It was more more about popularity in nightclubs. That was that was the huh, driving force. Okay. Um, I was more passionate about my nightclubs than I was about my own career. Yeah, cocaine has a way of doing that to people, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does, I and mean, they, they kind of go hand in hand. And it moves you off the trajectory that you might have been on. It's a horrible drug, and what I like to tell my, particularly the young guys that I work with, is. Uh huh. Um, don't sabotage your life like I did myself. I feel like I started sabotaging my life when I was 13. Yeah. So when you were 13, what was the sabotaging that was going on and what led up to that sabotaging? Was it something that occurred in your family of origin? I had some discussions around that topic too, because um, unlike many mm -hmm. people, I don't feel like I have those sorts of family issues that may drive people to want to escape. Uh, rather than... Mm -hmm. uh, I was um, super popular in school all the way through, mm -hmm. and I was a jock, and I was and I was uh -huh. good at sports. I'm, I'm five foot nine, and I was five foot nine when I was twelve. So give me a big advantage in sports. Yeah, I'll bet. And uh, so I was very very popular in school, you know. And when I got to junior high school in California, junior high school starts in seventh grade, so it goes seventh, oh, eighth, yeah. and ninth. So I got to seventh mm -hmm. grade, and I was very popular. But, but mm -hmm. that wasn't enough. I wanted, there was a group called the Stoners. The Stoners, yeah. Stoners. And so I, for some reason, I, I wanted to gain some popularity. I wanted to join that group. So I, I did join that group, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. when I started smoking pot. At my junior high school, there was a designated smoking area. Mm -hmm. And there was even a yard lady there, but um, it was mostly a pot smoking, a cigarette smoking, pot smoking area. Mm -hmm. I never smoked cigarettes mm -hmm. until much later in my life, but that's when I started smoking pot. That was that was the gateway, so to speak. Hmm. Was that something that other jocks were doing, or was the smoking pot and the moving over to the stoners group, did that pull you away from or separate you from the jocks? Did you go from being a jock to being a stoner, or were you able to maintain both identities? I, I was able to maintain both identities, but none of the other jocks were stoners at that point. By the time I got to high school, that had changed. But in seventh grade, I, it was just me. All the jocks were pretty straight-laced really? people. Yeah, it was, it was just yeah. me. But I, so I was able to maintain both, but I, my friendships changed. I stopped hanging around like after school with the jocks and started hanging around with the stoners. And smoking pot, as I recall from my own experience, made me less ambitious about the things I had passion for prior to smoking pot. Did your interest in being a jock wane as a result of your hanging with the stoners and, and smoking pot? 
No, no, I love sports. Uh, going back to when I was, uh, as soon as I could read about third or fourth grade, nine or 10, yeah. I would race my father uh-huh. to the sports page every morning at 6 a.m. and read it cover to cover. And then I read the, then I read oh, the front wow. page. I, I love sports. So no, it didn't, it did not affect uh, my love for sports or my participation. I played in all the sports all the way through school. Huh. But what it did do is weigh my passion a little bit for school. I, I was in the star math class. But I remember right. um, in seventh grade, I went from the star math class. I dropped down one level just to make my my life easier, so I could party more, mm-hmm. be more social. Yeah, that was mm-hmm. that. Yeah. So sure. the, yeah. So partially answer your question. Yeah. Well, I, I've heard that a lot from the people I've interviewed that they were good students up to a point, and then they started getting involved in alcohol and drugs, and uh, it moved them off the mark. Some it didn't. Some were still able to. I mean, I was able to excel academically, even though I was smoking uh, pot all the time. What role did alcohol play in your early pot smoking days? Sure. Yeah. So you know, both my parents were alcoholics. Uh huh. And we had a full, fully stocked bar in our house, cases of, mm. of, of everything, vodka, scotch, bourbon. They buy it by the, by the mm-hmm. case. And, and so drinking was accepted and, and normal in my household. And the rule was, mm-hmm. so, you know, okay to have a drink as long as it's in the house. Yeah. And so it was, it was pretty casual in my house. So we, you know, I, I think, that was sort of an early catalyst, you know, for, for drinking. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, I remember my my very, very first bad episode with alcohol. I was in seventh grade. I'm, I went to the seventh grade dance and I, I, and mm-hmm. I, and I poured, uh, I got a 16 ounce bottle of a Coke bottle, filled it up with vodka, pure vodka. And I pretty much chugged the whole thing between my house and the time I got <laughs> to the dance and it was at some point of the dance, I realized I was like just really, really drunk. And wow. I ran all the way home. And it was a long run, several miles, two yeah. or three miles from the dance to my house, went, snuck it back into my house and then threw my guts up big time, just horrible. And yeah. it, it, it was such a horrible memory experience. That I didn't drink vodka again mm-hmm. until I was in my late 30s. So I was, thir- yeah. I was 13. Yeah. That's how bad it scarred me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I drank the next weekend. <laughs> Couldn't, I just switched. I just switched it to something different. So, like a lot of people, you had a terrible ex- first experience, but yet you couldn't wait to do it again. Couldn't wait to do it again. Couldn't wait to change the way I feel. So you were hanging with people who were drinking and smoking. You were still participating in sports and academically, you were still doing pretty good. Were there any signs that you were starting to have a problem with that or it was causing problems or what kind of consequences were occurring while you were in uh, junior high and high school that that might have pointed to there being a bigger problem with drugs and alcohol? There, there, there were actually no consequences during my junior or high school years. Um, mm-hmm. I always had a goal of getting A's in the courses that I cared about and, and at least B's mm-hmm. in the courses I didn't. And, and I knew I wanted to go to college. Sure. So um, I was able to keep those targets and do that. One thing that looking back is that we used to go to the all these parties and, and I used to get in these brawls, these fights all the time. Cause my, one of my friends, he was an Irish guy who couldn't drink. And, and I, I, cr- well, I created a little joke with him. He used to joke to me about the shortest book ever written. And he called it, you know, the book on Italian war heroes because I'm Italian. <laughs> right. So I had a counter joke. I said, well, 
That's about as that book is about as short as uh, great Irish drinkers. He <laughs> 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 was a bad alcoholic. He he passed away. He was my first friend who OD'd on drugs and alcohol. Oh. He would get us in a fight every almost every single Friday night. I mean like hundreds huh. of fights. So wow. that would be the indication that there was a problem, all the fights, all the brawls. Uh-huh. uh-huh. So that was uh-huh. that was the sign for sure. But like nobody knew about it. You know, I I never got messed up. I never got any broken arms and legs or cuts in my face and stuff per se. And so Did you ever get arrested for that? <laughs> Did your folks ever find out? Yeah. No, but you triggered a memory, Howard, that I had forgot about. In seventh grade we were smoking pot at Pioneer Park and some cops came up and arrested us. And there was no consequence of, of that. I don't recall if it was a court mm-hmm. thing or if the cops just brought us home and told our parents, you know, back in those days, sure. things were a little different. But other than that, no DWIs, wow. no car crashes, no car accidents. I had friends who, who crashed their cars into tree stumps drunk. Uh, that, you know, happened a lot in high school, wow. a few times in high school, stuff like that. But um, yeah. Yeah. So you were one of those charmed alcoholic drug addicts, <laughs> I like to call them, that were able to get away with all of that behavior without DWIs, without getting arrested, without the consequences. And it sounds like you had umpteen opportunities to get in trouble, but you didn't. Did that influence the way you felt about your the impunity with which you used drugs and alcohol? That's a, a really good point. The way I viewed myself, you know, you know post-college is, you know, here I, you mm-hmm. know, I'm a young master of the universe. I'm, I make six figures. I work hard and I play hard. I got, you know, and I you know, I dress in nice clothes and I've got fancy friends and how could I have a problem? How could I be doing all that if I had a problem? Yeah. So you continued that behavior, you said, through college. Did it deviate very much from the kind of behavior you had in high school? Were you fighting as much? Were you getting drunk and stoned as much or more? So what were the the kind of groups you were hanging with in college and how did they influence your later behavior? Yeah. Um, college was, was pretty standard, you know, uh, Drinking, you know, after intramurals games and, you know, with the guys in the dorm and mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. And, um, but here was the thing I discovered. I realized fairly early on the game, I really didn't like pot. It made me paranoid. Uh-huh. And so I actually sort of just slowly but surely started smoking less and less pot, started turning down the bong hits because I just, I didn't like the way it made me feel. Mm-hmm. Sure, I get that. You know, the pot smoking waned, just, you know, every year just got less and less and less until I finally came to the point that I, I hate pot. And I would, I would yeah. make this comment even right before rehab, that you could put a bale of hydro in my living room, come back in one year, and there wouldn't be one gram missing because I just didn't like didn't like the drug. Yeah. Did the moving away from pot move you more towards alcohol or other substances? Yeah, so um, there, you know, there was no cocaine in college. It wasn't on the radar. It was really, really yeah. expensive. Yeah, you know, I started working at a nightclub in my senior year in high school, and there was a drug dealer there. And so, you know, sometimes he'd front me a little bit, and I would be able to sell a little bit so I could afford some myself. Mm-hmm. That's where cocaine started creeping in a little bit. Yeah, uh, probably like the senior year in college. But I would study at the library until about ten, eleven o'clock, and I'd go out almost every night. But it was just pretty much it was mostly mm. just drinking. I wasn't really a sloppy drunk, per se. Yeah, that's interesting. So so once again, you lived the charmed life of an alcoholic through your college, uh, but now cocaine is looming. Was it exclusively snorting cocaine? You, you weren't doing anything with crack or mainlining or anything like that, were you? 
No, I wasn't. There was something called Freebase, which is crack for crack was crack. And there was a few stints of that. You know, after college, I went back to San Francisco and then from San Francisco, uh, moved to Dallas. And then Dallas is where things really blasted off the, the cocaine. And there was some Freebase. I, it was kind of a hard thing to do and cook cook it up. And so I was a snorting guy. So you mentioned going back to San Francisco and then coming back to Dallas. And you'd mentioned earlier about dealing cocaine up in Dallas and also being arrested and going to jail. How many years after you were out of college was all that going on? Oh, yes. About four or five years after college. Okay. So you're working in your career four or five years after you were selling uh, selling dope on the side. What were the circumstances under which you were arrested and went to went to jail? Yes. So um, it probably saved my life. But, but what really? happened was I was living in Dallas and me and my girlfriend and we were going to nightclubs and we lived for nightclubs. I've always lived for nightclubs. I've, I've moved cities for nightclubs. I moved from yeah. San Francisco to Dallas for nightclubs. <laughs> the Dallas nightclub scene was way better than San Francisco. It wasn't even close. Yeah. And then I decided to move to LA for a nightclub. I was living in Dallas and I took a job in, in LA to go to that nightclub scene. And then my boss said, why don't you go to New York? Right. You can stay at the same company and New York's got better nightclubs than Dallas. So I said, yeah, that's a good idea. And I won't have to switch jobs. So I reneged on a job that I had accepted in LA and stayed with the company I was working for mm-hmm. and um, took a job in New York. And I had a little entourage you know, we were wheeling and dealing cocaine, you know, and, and I knew everybody, I knew everybody mm-hmm. at the nightclub. When I pulled up to the nightclub, the Seawood part, but anyway, I was moving to New York. So world, life was going to change. And so we're, I'm in New York for six weeks waiting to get an apartment. And then I get the apartment. The movers are coming to get our stuff in Dallas. I go back to Dallas to uh, wait the movers. It was like a two-day thing. Yeah. And my entourage had arranged for one last deal. And it turned out that deal was with the DEA. Huh. Had they been following you for a while? Yes, yes. It's, it's so funny, Howard. Oh, I, you know, you'd say to yourself, because you're, when you're doing coke, you get paranoid. And you say, you know, those weren't two G-men in a suit walking in the parking lot of my, my garage. It couldn't be <laughs> following me. And then one day I was driving out of my, my uh, apartment in Dallas. I come up and, you know, and, I, and I stop and I look both ways. And there's a guy on the other side of the street snapping a picture of me and my Corvette as I'm pulling out. I'm like, that guy couldn't be taking a picture of me. And even on the day we got busted, I said, that cannot be a helicopter trailing us around Hmm. the city of Dallas. Oh, yes, it could. (laughs) It it was, you know. And and so. Oh, my gosh. You think, uh, you know, I'm just being paranoid. And guess what? I wasn't. Right. <laughs> I wasn't paranoid. Right. Yeah, so wow. I went back and got, we were set up by the DEA and that's, you know, how five of us got arrested and five of us ended up going to jail. Yeah. Wow. So what kind of sentence did you get from that? Five years with, with three years special parole. I'll give you a little fun fact. So I went to Lewisburg uh, Federal Penitentiary and um, it's a very impressive prison. The gutters are made out of copper and the scales of justice yeah. are imprinted on these copper gutters every three feet. I think Al Capone may have stayed there. It was a pretty impressive place. But I had a good job. I, you know, I was being a white collar guy. I got to work for the warden. Mm-hmm. That was that's where I worked. You know, during the day and you know, did paperwork. Uh, you know, for the warden. So it wasn't bad. But wasn't bad at all. Worked out every day. Read a million books. So you were the Shawshank Redemption guy, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Working for the warden? Yeah, yeah, could, yeah, that's true. That's true. So how long did you spend uh, actually behind bars? About 30 months. Then I was paroled to New York City. Uh-huh. We had moved to New York, and you know, it was kind of funny how even that happened. So you know, we got busted in Dallas, 
and I hired like one of the top criminal attorneys in all of Dallas. And all the money I had made, you right. know, wheeling and dealing, I gave him. And he got me no true build. You know, we were indicted by the state of Texas. And so I'm living in New York thinking everything is pretty cool. And then about one year later, I get called up to the HR department. And I really thought I was going to get a promotion because I was doing pretty well. And I get up there and it was the two same DE agents that arrested me one year earlier. I had been indicted federally. Ouch. And my attorney had actually told me that could happen. And it did. So what you learn is pretty damn easy to, if you hire attorneys and spend money to get off a state deal, yeah. almost impossible to get off a federal deal, no matter what. Uh-huh. My, and my dad had told me a long time ago, ah, I'm too old to go to jail. Because I told my dad what I was doing. He said, I'm too old to go to jail. Right. And he says, yeah, they're smarter than you and they got more resources, you know. And he was right. Yeah. So what was the outcome of that federal case? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, so I went back and, you know, we were watching Miami Vice a lot back during those days. And I thought it was Don Johnson. I had a Don oh, Johnson yeah. jacket. Uh-huh. I mean, almost exactly the same as his. I drove a black <laughs> Corvette and we still, you know, we would listen, we'd watch, you know, Miami Vice and then we'd go out partying. And so I thought I was done. And the, well, oh, that was my, my downfall because I had like, I had a, like a sawed off shotgun in my car and they used that as leverage to get me to mm. say, you might be able to bullshit your way out of the, the drug thing. Cause I didn't get caught. My, my entourage got busted, not me. Um, mm-hmm. so you might be able, mm-hmm. you might be able to shake that. You're not gonna be able to shake this gun that was in your car. Um, so I ended up pleading guilty um, and, uh, and got that five-year sentence. So. Okay. So that was another five-year sentence or that was the original sentence you're talking about? <laughs> that, was the ori- that was the original, yeah. Because the first one, the, the state beef, right. I was looking okay. from zero to 99. Texas is not a place to get busted for drugs. I was looking at, I was looking at the maximum right. f- five to 99. It was, it was pretty hellacious. But again, no true bill. So I, I got off the, the state indictment. You were off the state indictment and moved right into the federal indictment. Yeah, federal. Yeah. And so... So 30, 30 months behind bars, you're paroled. Did that experience in prison, did that change your thinking about what you had been doing? Did it make you want to stop doing it? Or from an addiction standpoint, did you still feel that you were addicted while you were serving your time? What, what did that look like? As funny as this may sound, I never thought I was addicted. What did I learn from that experience? I learned I didn't want to I, that I didn't want to be in jail. So what did I learn? I learned not to sell drugs. Mm. That was crystal clear, mm. right? I learned that lesson really well. Never again, not selling drugs, mm-hmm. not doing that. And so I just, you know, I just wanted to get out of there as quick as possible and, and resume my life. And then when I got out, I was on parole and parole in New York City was no big deal. The guy was so busy, he didn't even have time to worry about me. But when I got, but then I moved to mm-hmm. Houston about a year later and when I got to Houston, the parole mm-hmm. officer, um, Rocky, Rocky P, he used to show up on my right. apartment at eight o'clock in the morning and piss test me or show up at work and random piss test me. So now I could drink. Wow. There was no rule against drinking. It was just no drugs. Right. So the entire time while I was on parole, I never used drugs ever until I was on special parole yeah. for five years. I went four years and 11 months without using any drugs on the 12th month of the fourth year. I was at a nightclub and I finally uh-huh. broke down and used some coke and had to sweat out a piss test. Because of a special parole, you come back and do the whole thing. They can make you do the whole thing over. But but, but during oh, my parole, wow. I drank, but um, no drugs. Mm-hmm. And 
No DWI. To this day, never got, never got a DWI. Luckily, of course. That's amazing. So while you were in prison and after you got out, you never acknowledged a drug problem. You acknowledged a drug selling problem. Correct. Nobody ever suggested I get help, do a 12-step program. That was never suggested to me. Anybody at all, or if it was, it may have been very briefly. It wasn't nobody family-wise or girlfriend-wise or... Yeah. Were they bringing AA behind bars at all at that time? Did you notice? I, I, I don't know. Probably. Yeah. yeah. One of my earliest guests, Tom D., got sober in prison and was sober for 20 years before he got out. And his is an amazing story, but he credits AA in prison with, with saving his life. You got out and so you you went back to behavior instead of going back to cocaine immediately you waited to the very end of your parole to to do it what was what was the outcome did you get caught again or what was next after that yeah so after that i just was you know working pretty hard got my license playing a lot of golf i was like a four mm-hmm. trick pony work go to the gym play golf and go nightclubbing that was my four trick pony. That was, those were my four passions, and I did them all really, really well. This is while I was in Houston, and and so what okay. I'll say about drinking, you know, all the way through, all my buddies drank, and so you know, a fair amount of drinking, cocaine use. It was it, it was only as available. It wasn't my none of my friends did cocaine, and so um, mm. hit and miss. You know, it was you know, but if you look back, it was probably a slow, pretty slow acceleration here and there, a little here and there more, and just it kind of started snowballing and then um when met my my wife we started partying pretty good and um huh. then it really amped up quite a bit we'll be right back my friends if you're enjoying aa recovery interviews check out my big book podcast the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of alcoholics anonymous It's an engaging word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. Listen to all 85 episodes by subscribing to the Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on bigbookpodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. Did your alcohol use supplant your use of cocaine during the years that you weren't using cocaine very frequently? Did you did you drink like a drug addict or would you not have considered yourself a problem drinker at that time? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had discipline in terms of, I, uh, you know, only drinking at nightclub. I didn't drink. I wouldn't be drinking at home alone, um, that sort of thing. Um, mm. Pre-heavy cocaine use. Uh, my drinking was pretty much, you know, limited to nightclubs and, and you know, after the golf game, that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Looking back on it, you know, it's, the drinking sabotaged my life because, you know, going out nightclubbing and drinking and then you wake up, you're not, you're not full yeah. strength the next day for work. Um, I was sabotaging. Yeah. So I'd say, yeah, it was probably a substitute for changing the way I feel. Um, this is the point, I guess, in your story where you met your wife. You met her in a nightclub? Yes. So I like to say I met her at the gym. <laughs> okay. A uh, nightclub was more accurate. So how many years prior to your getting sober had you guys gotten married? Well, we had been together 10 years before I got sober. Um, we hadn't been okay. married the whole time. We'd been married about half uh-huh. that time. You guys first got together 26, 25, 26 we years ago. We got together ago. about 95-ish, and I got sober in, in 
2005, right? So did you just continue on with what you were doing, but now you were with somebody? Yeah, yeah. Um, we liked to go out dancing and, and you know, listening to music. Uh-huh. I never thought my ex-wife had a problem because... She was never really a big drinker, but she mm-hmm. was like the life of the party because she had the personality and the, you know, she was vivacious and fun and people liked her yeah. and liked us as a couple. So it was more yeah. about just, you know, going out yeah. and just having a fun time partying. And she liked to dance too. So it was more about dressing up pretty and going out and nightlife, you know? So Ernie and his girlfriend or Ernie and his wife, who are, they're beautiful people. They're the life of the party. Is that a pretty accurate description? That was a pretty good description. You know, all of our friends were of the same sort of ilk, like to dress up dancing and, and, and have fun. So it was in. So, yeah. So I think we were just considered mm-hmm. part of, you know, part of the fun bunch. What separated mm-hmm. us probably from an average couple is we, we would like to do it every weekend, not just once a month or something like that. So as we move towards your sobriety date, when did you first notice that the wheels were starting to get a little bit wobbly? And what did you attribute that to? So during the during those nightclubbing episodes, um, finally ran into some people that also like cocaine as much as I do, and so they you know yeah. so they had access and knew where to get the cocaine, and so uh, my cocaine mm-hmm. use really started to accelerate late nineties. Um, took a took a mm-hmm. break from that when our daughter was born. We we managed to take a year off from mm-hmm. partying, and then. Uh, Mm-hmm. And sort of kicked back in, started to take over my life. I would say around maybe 2003, and and I remember exactly what guaranteed I was going to wind up either dead or in rehab or in jail was uh, three things happened. You know, step one was I went on my own business wise. I left the company I worked for and started my own practice. So I call that you know in terms of accountability. One giant lop of accountability was was removed. Uh, step two, my father passed away. So I used to go visit my father two or three times a week. Yeah, I moved him from San Francisco to Houston, and he oh. lived around the corner. And he had a girlfriend. And I spent a lot of time uh-huh. over there, but he passed away. You know, around age eighty. And so that was step two of accountability taken away. So how long were you working on your own when your dad passed? Maybe a year or something like that. Uh-huh. But then I'm really out of control. I was in really, really bad shape for his funeral. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty embarrassing. I look back uh-huh. about it. Like almost, uh-huh. It's so cringeworthy. It was really pathetic. And that reminds me, you know, he was, you know, you know, he's in hospice and, and I take off to go party. Uh-huh. And, he, and he passes away, you know, yeah. that next morning. So the same thing to my mom. It was, you know, 10, 15 years earlier, you know, I went to San Francisco for a party when my mom was basically going into hospice. I mean, that, you know, we talk about that selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, oh. you know, root of our problem. Yeah. I have the isms in spades. Yeah. I think I'm a really good example yeah. of the isms being way greater than the than the actual drink part of it, you know? Um, drinking was just a symptom of the real problem. And the real problem was just all the stuff that we identify in the big book. Cocaine was way worse. The alcohol was not good, but the isms, my God. And so, you know, I, I think I tell that story, you know, I, I bailed on both my parents when they were in hospice situation to party. And and so, so he passes away. And then, oh, so that's two out of three accountability. I was in bad shape by my dad's funeral. And at that time period, I was like out of control. Uh-huh. Some time period mm-hmm. after that's yeah. when my wife left me. And then I had no accountability whatsoever. And then it just took me six to 12 months to wind mm-hmm. up in rehab. 
Did you know she was going to be leaving? Has she threatened to leave on certain occasions or did it take you completely by surprise or was it something that you knew about deep down but weren't able to really admit to yourself? Uh, I think it caught me by surprise. I was becoming quite the jerk and mm. horrible father and husband. Just, all, just thinking about myself. Mm-hmm. But it, yes, it did catch me by surprise. I didn't think mm-hmm. she would do it. Did she move out or did she kick you out? She moved out, yeah. She did. Wow. Do you remember what her parting words or what she told you when she left uh, that, that sticks with you? She was just mad as a hornet. So, um, you know, that that final weekend where, you know, I was supposed to be on a trip that I wasn't, you know, that was that was the final straw. Just like she had it. Mm. Final straw. That's just, you know, no, I try to talk her out of it. No reconsideration. Like, nope, you know, you, you know, had it with you. So. Huh. And that was uh, how long before rehab? I would say six to 12 months. I don't remember exactly. So you had a period of time in there where your three-step route to perdition allowed you no accountability to anybody. So did you really go to town at that point? Or was the, the, the moving out of your wife, did that interfere with that? Yeah, that was full. I was just full steam ahead, seven days a week. Oh. Not six, seven. Uh-huh. Seven days a week. Seven. Drinking, yeah. And so, if when anybody who does a lot of coke, you get really high, strung, and nervous. And so, alcohol cuts right. the edge. So, my mm-hmm. drinking really ramped up quite a bit um, that last year to cut the edge. Um, and uh, and so, I drank so much that, and I knew I didn't want to go back. To, to prison, so I always had I either took a taxi or a wrecker home. I used to take the taxi, mm. and then I realized I didn't like not having the car the next morning. So I got smart, <laughs> and, and I started having a wrecker take me home every single night. And, you know, I've always shut the oh. bar down like every night, seven days a week. Shut it wow. down, 2 a.m., have wow. a wrecker drive wow. me back home. Drop me off like uh-huh. a couple houses down because it's loud, nah, clang, clang, clang. I didn't yeah, want my yeah. next door, next door neighbor to know. So, um, but right. but I had got to that got to that point where I needed to have a record bring me home every night. That's pretty pretty ingenious. I like that. That's a that, I, I never thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> One way to keep. I I used to have a friend who said that I've got an absolute fail safe method for not getting a DWI, and that is don't drive. You know? <laughs> so. So he would get all of his arrests for PI, you know, public intoxication. So, uh, well, that that's interesting. So what was the the moment of truth? What was the actual turning point that you just said, I need help, I got to do something? Yeah, it happened the, the day I went into rehab. I, me and my, well, so the night before, I remember the night before, uh, July 31st, 2005, it was a Sunday, and um, so I got up that morning, I woke up late like I always do, and then went to go see the man, picked up my mm-hmm. cocaine, went to my office, and I remember, mm-hmm. I remember I was playing cards with two homeless people in back of my office, uh-huh. you know, a guy and a girl, huh. and I had a, we were playing some cards, I'm a card player, and, um, right. and I remember I wouldn't give him any of my drugs, but I gave him, I gave him alcohol. And I was lonely. I was very lonely. I was just super, super lonely. And then I, then I went home and I was lonely. So I went to a nightclub and um, I, there was, I had a female friend who didn't have any romantic interest in me. 
but I talked her into mm-hmm. letting me spend the night at her house that night. And I had a business meeting the next mm-hmm. morning at 7 a.m. early. And, and oh, so my. I brought my suit and I met my business partner at my biggest client's office at 7 a.m. And, and we walked up in, in, in my business and, and Tommy said to my partner, uh, can I have a moment with Ernie? And he pulled me into his office and said, say, I've been acting really, really strangely this last year or two. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And it finally dawned on me. Do you have a monkey on your back? And mm. I just started crying my, my ass off because I was just, I was really I had that you know that the book talks about you know that that demoralization and I I, mm-hmm. I, had, mm-hmm. I had that loneliness and demoralization that you know few men feel I was there I had that mm-hmm. you know I just you know I was just really I was just really really sad and lonely and I just started crying and said yes because do you want help and I said yes and he said good he called up his insurance agent um, who recommended a facility uh, for us to go to, mm-hmm. he drove me to the facility and wrote a check for fifteen grand for work I hadn't done yet, so I could go into that facility and get help. Wow, wow! Now this is your client who's doing this for you. This is my this is Whoa. my client. I call him my guardian angel. Sounds yep. like mm-hmm. it. That's amazing. Yeah. What a neat uh, moment of truth to to go in and see your largest client. Who did did you believe all along he never thought you had a problem? I mean, did you feel like you were getting away with it the whole time he was a client of yours? He's a really smart guy. Um, I really suspected, you know, he knew something was up. And I just thought maybe because he liked me, he was cutting me a little slack. And plus, I had a business partner oh, who really okay. was helpful, you know, for, you know, keeping things looking, keeping the work yeah. uh, uh, you know, of good quality. So... Yeah, it sounds like so as a guardian angel, he would necessarily know what he was doing. And so he gets you checked in. You were there for two weeks, you mentioned earlier, and then you did IOP. Did you do that for six weeks after uh, or how long after? You know, I don't recall, I don't recall the prescribed right, period, right. four weeks, six weeks. It was quite a while, but I, uh-huh. I did that faithfully. I did, I did yeah. everything by the book. I was really... It was it was a miracle, yeah. you know. That that was a God thing, you know. That God, you know. What the one thing I tell my sponsees um, is, I've done two things really, really well. When I got, you know, I didn't drink. Number mm-hmm. one, most foremost. Number two, I really right. surrendered really well. I, I, if you recall, I yeah. mean, I never you heard me. You never heard me say I think. You know, when I got called on at meetings, I would yeah. say I would report. I'm on step one. I'm working my sponsor. I'm on step one. I, I didn't really even talk too much. I just reported. What step I was on, as per, as as my sponsor told me to wow. do. So if someone's eating your lunch, tell it. You can go ahead and tell it. But otherwise, just tell them what step you're on. Yeah, and people won't people won't know what what you're what's going on for you if you don't tell them. It's so easy in the three to five minutes that you have to share in any given meeting to talk about anything but what's really going on. So I really admire that, and that to me uh, demonstrates the real importance of a good a good fundamental sponsor. I, I get that. So. Let me ask you this question, Ernie. Do you think that based on your experience and what you've experienced over the years with AA, do you think you could have gotten sober in AA without going through treatment? Or was treatment kind of a vital first step for you to have to go through before you could get to your willingness to engage in AA? I think I definitely needed treatment. I think I needed to be off the streets for uh-huh. a period of time. Uh-huh. That, that was just so helpful. I see. To be check out of life, 
all you know no phone yeah no contacts and really yeah. just yeah that that break from life yeah i i highly recommend it um anybody who if he who's yeah. given a, a try to do it on their own failed once or twice it's much easier so as time has gone on so you've been sober going on 16 years now and that's a that's a heck of a long time um were there times during that period between when you first got sober and came into AA and along the way or even up to today that your sobriety was severely tested or or your willingness to stay sober was stretched to its limit? And, and how did you handle those situations if you had that? Um, I'll tell you about the biggest test. It, right. it happened on a Saturday morning. I, I drove to the office and no one was there. Parking lot was empty, covered parking, parked my car, went to the trunk, got my briefcase out. I always keep my briefcase in the trunk so it doesn't get stolen. I go into the office, work for an hour, 90 minutes, come back downstairs, go to the trunk, open the trunk, stick the briefcase in the trunk, look down, and I see a giant bindle of cocaine like like an eight ball worth, a big bindle sitting right there at my feet. In the trunk? Not in the trunk, it, on the ground. On the ground, on, on the, the ground. Oh my gosh. And I'm thinking, Whoa. what are the odds that there be this giant bindle, eight ball of cocaine sitting there um, mm-hmm. you know, at the foot of my trunk, which I mm-hmm. don't think was there when I, this morning, like, I just, it seemed so improbable, so improbable oh, that that wow. would happen. And I'm, all these thoughts are going through my head. What should I do? What do I do? You know, you know, do I, do I throw it away? You know, you know, what, what, to, what, should, what's the next right thing to do? I, 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 I was like, just didn't know what to do. Didn't I just, you know, I didn't know what to do. And yeah. I, I had these thoughts, you know, should I call my sponsor? Yeah, I probably should call my sponsor. How long were you sober at this point? Uh, six months. And ultimately, I decided wow. the best thing to do was to do nothing, drive away, and call my sponsor. And that's what I did. I just, I didn't touch it. I just, I just backed up wow. and pulled, up, pulled away. I thought maybe I was being set up, you know, by my, by somebody to get busted. To get, I, I, I didn't, I just thought I was being set yeah. up somehow, some way. And I just thought the best move was not, don't touch yeah. it, just drive away, call your sponsor. And that's what I did. I jumped in the car and I, I called, uh, I called my sponsor. Did you look around for it the next day? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, uh, I've, I've been lucky. I, you know, the, I have the relief that the big book talks about, you know, uh, recoil like a hot flame. I, you know, I'd, I'd like to, I always mention that today. I, you know, if God came down to me right now and say, hey, Ernie, you just had this great interview with Howard. You're really in a great place. You can resume drinking like a gentleman. I, I would, I would thank God, you know, for the offer and say, no, um, um, I don't need to sprinkle anything in my life to make it better. And I have the best family of friends in the whole wide world. I would never want to give that up for anything. Nothing. There'd be, there's no substitute for our fellowship. Yeah. It's just the most amazing thing in the world. And, and so it's such a, you know, such a gift, such an advantage in life. Um, how we walk life together. We do life together. You know, it's just, it's just an amazing thing. Yeah. So, um, and you're talking about a tandem blessing there is what, what I hear you saying. The fact that you got through that situation at six months and in the years 
since you've recognized the importance of the fellowship and staying close and staying connected, we started out talking about your your daughter and the fact that you have a relationship with her that probably would not have been possible without being a sober member of AA. Is that a is that a pretty fair statement? I didn't know how to be a good father. I didn't, you know, didn't know what that looked like. Number one, I was too selfish, self-centered, self-seeking to be a good father, step one. Step two, I really didn't know the yeah. right action moves. But um, my grand sponsor, my grand sponsor gets all the credit because he had a daughter and he showed me exactly step for step what it means to be a good father, a present father, a father who's there for their daughter at all times, a, a man that their daughter can real, can uh, count on. And so, um, and I, so I tell my yeah. young guys, because I, I really like working with guys who are going through divorces and who have kids because I was there. Mm-hmm. My my ex-wife came to my house uh, four days ago and cut my hair. You know, I'm getting married in next year and she wants to come to the wedding. And my, my fiance is down with it. Wow. Like, what could go wrong with that? <laughs> but, wow. But it, just, it just shows the power of the program that, you know, I can have my ex-wife wow. and her husband over at the house and we... And it's all thanks to the program. You know, we, Mm -hmm. you know, we learn, you know, what's important, what's not, you know. And so, um, and so I I like to tell the guys who are going through divorces and and broke and have credit card debt and all that stuff. There's one of us out there who's gone through whatever you're going through and can show you how to do it sober, sober style. Yeah. Do you find that you realize that about them after they've already been attracted to you? Uh, That's how it's been for me as a sponsor is that a guy will ask me to sponsor him and somewhere along the way I'll say yes. But it isn't until we start getting together and start working the steps that I start to realize just how much like me he is or how much like him I am. Have you found that to be the case as well? Or do you seek out those guys? I don't don't even know if I should say this. This is kind of it's kind of bizarre. But I mean, Seems like uh-huh. I seem to attract a lot of gay guys for sponsees. You know, um, uh-huh. you know that and, I, and guys who are broke. Um, because I talked about my credit card debt. Most of us have that when we come in the program. But I feel like I have a lot to offer the men who who have wives who are mad as hornets. Because me and my ex-wife, we almost we almost rekindled. It was possible. It was possible. Right. And so um, yeah. it, the, the program, yeah. you know, I was talking to a guy the other day. I said, you know. You, you just have to stay sober, work the steps, and let God take care of your wife and the kids. Just, you have to trust that. You have to trust that. I guarantee you it'll work out for the best if you just stay sober and work the steps. Guaranteed. No questions asked. That's a process that you have to go through and you have to trust in. Uh, and the results are nothing short of phenomenal. That's been my experience. And are you still involved in the alumni group uh, at the facility that you got sober at? Uh, yeah, no, I'm no longer doing the men's luncheon. Um, I had the uh, pleasure co-chaired it for many years. So the gifts of sobriety are materializing and have materialized over the course of your sobriety. You just mentioned one just now. You're going to be getting married as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. The woman that you're marrying is, you know, we like to believe that our spouses are are really very, very supportive of our programs. Have you found that to be the case with your fiance? Oh, my God. I could not have a bigger fan. You know, I told her we're we're taking Randy to uh, lunch on Sunday and then going to watch him pick up his uh, his, uh, 17th year chip on, on Sunday night. And she said, give him a kiss for me for, for getting you sober. Cool. 
And so I said, I told her, I said, he'd probably like to have it directly from you, <laughs> but he's the best sponsor in the world. He just Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's amazing. He listens exceptionally well. Yeah, he does. I've, I've had the opportunity to get to know him and, and he's, he's been through quite a bit himself over the course of his sobriety. And he really demonstrated some pretty exceptional coping mechanisms and tied them very closely to his participation in the program. We're getting ready to wrap up here. I just wanted to ask if there were any things that you could say to a newcomer who's kind of on the fence about Alcoholics Anonymous, what would you say to them? I would say find a couple of people who have two things. One, great sobriety, and two, you find them very attractive as humans and spend as much time as possible with Mm them. I I wonder how you and I love the meetings. We love the fellowship. It's a joy. Wednesday night's my home group, and it's my favorite day of the week. I wake up happy Wednesday morning because it's... Right. Yeah. And I yeah. perceive I have friends who actually who <laughs> stop working the program yeah. and manage to stay sober and, and, and they just don't enjoy the program like we do. They just don't enjoy it. And for me, I, I love the program. I enjoy the fellowship. Yeah. I enjoy the men. Yeah. And so I perceive that perhaps some people just don't get that connection. And so I, I, my thought was like, I'm thinking out of the box here because obviously, you know, mm-hmm. get a sponsor, work the steps is the answer. But if, if you, sure. you know, I think sometimes maybe if you can find some people you really click with, who you're attracted to have and, and have great sobriety and then just spend a lot of time with yeah. them, become really close with them and develop some really close friends in the fellowship. Yeah. Life is a we yeah. deal. This program is a super we deal and we can't do it by, I mean, I guess you could yeah. do it by yourself. It wouldn't be any fun if you could. Mm-hmm. Even if you could, like, why? I mean, life is more fun when we yeah. do it together. Yeah. You know, the good and the bad, the ugly, everything. We do it together. Yeah, it's like, that's... it's just so beyond amazing. That's so well said. And what you're talking about, Ernie, is the intersection between the fellowship of the program and the fellowship of the spirit and how through other people, I am able to connect with a power greater than myself by virtue of the relationship of love and mutual respect and understanding and tolerance and consideration for other men who have the same diseases I have, who have the same challenges and foibles and who enjoy the same opportunities, uh, enjoying their lives as anybody can who does work the steps of the program. So I think that's a terrific attitude to have. You know, when you're talking to somebody who's on the fence to say, find the people and stay close. I always say, if you don't come back to AA for yourself, come back for the other people because your presence, newcomer, is so important for the people sitting in that room to feel uh, as long as they want to feel grateful about the gifts of the program. So you're an extraordinary example, I think, of a man who's work this program to the fullest. Uh, I see you residing in the middle of it too. That's the cool thing. I never, whenever I see you, I never wonder, well, I wonder how, how Ernie's doing because your, your program is reflected just in the way that you are. And, and I see it whenever I see you. And it's, it always brings a smile to my face when we run into each other. Uh, you know, I love you and, and I'm so glad to have you as a friend and a fellow a trudger uh, on the road of happy destiny. And this has been amazing for you to be able to sit here with me, talk about our respective lives and sobriety. And uh, I can't thank you enough. Thank you, Howard. And uh, I love you and want to compliment you. One of the things you did for me in those first days is you remembered my name. You mm-hmm. talked to me with love and mm-hmm. respect. Mm-hmm. You made me feel like I was 
You know, one of the guys in the fellowship from day one, I didn't feel like an outsider. I felt like, you know, I knew you were like well-loved and connected. And since you loved me, I felt safe. Like, well, like if Howard's hugging you, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, you're in. It went a long way. And, I, you know, I, yeah. I observed that. That's, you know, I really appreciate how you yeah. embrace all of us men, every last one of us. It's, it's a special gift. Thank you. Thanks, Ernie. Well, my friends, that's it for this episode of AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks to Ernie G. for sharing his story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you help me spread the word by recommending it to at least three people you know? That includes sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. As the number of listeners grows, this podcast should be of help to more and more people. Of course, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, and other podcast providers. You can also visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every interview, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.